Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast. I'm Jason Moore, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Marilyn Ritchie. We are coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedules allow. Marilyn and I plan to take turns as host leading the discussions. I'm Jason Moore, and it's great to be back to host episode 14, our 15th episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. We are coming to you live on tape from the metaverse due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Sitting next to me virtually is co-host Marilyn Ritchie, and behind the scenes is our talented sound engineer, Michael Stauffer. Marilyn, what have you been up to since our last recording? Well, hi, Jason, and hello, Michael. It's great to be back after our hiatus last month. Um, it's been oh, such a busy, hectic spring. Uh, one of the the first things that comes to mind is teaching. I, you know, it was nice these first few years at Penn, I am not the director of any course yet. And, and as Jason knows, that's gonna change in 2022. But even while I was not a course director, somehow I managed to either guest lecture or be a discussion leader in four different classes this month. I guess I said yes too many times to different people and they all converged on April. And so I've been teaching all month on completely different topics. And so it's, it's not even just the preparation of one thing, but it's been this topic and then this one. And so it, it really was a lot of effort, um, but it was really fun. You know, to, I met a lot of students that I hadn't interacted with yet since we're not on campus. You know, a lot of these students in the program, I'm, I just don't see because I have no reason to, to interact with them. And so it was really nice to get to meet some of the new students. And also I have to say, you know, in comparison with this time last year, the level of student engagement in the virtual courses was really great. Students had their cameras on, they were discussing and really participating. And, you know, I taught last spring, you know, right when everything switched to virtual at the start of the pandemic, pandemic and people were just kind of out of sorts. And it was just really, it was fun and it was nice. Um, so it was great, but I, I'm definitely um, glad that we're in May and, and classes are over so I can get back to some of the other things on my long to-do list. Um, other things I've been working on, uh, I've been doing a lot of reviewing. You know, I think in the last episode, I mentioned that it was committee meeting season. I had had a lot of committee meetings back in like February and early March, and then it shifted and kind of later March and April, tons of, I was on a study section. Um, I'm on advisory panels for different entities. So uh, like the, the Phoenix toolkit from NHGRI, um, the Anvil from NHGRI. I'm on the International Advisory Board for the UK Biobank, um, some research oversight committees for some projects out of Genome Canada. And they all had their kind of advisory panel meetings over the last few months. So I've had all of these kind of chunks of two to three to four hour windows of these you know, panel reviews, which they're great. And it's so nice to see what everybody's working on and give feedback. But it just, it was a lot of hours on Zoom. 
Um, and I've also reviewed a bunch of manuscripts lately too. So it's been, been busy in that way. Um, what other things? So uh, I learned in April that I was ex accepted into the ELAM program, which is an executive leadership and academic medicine program. Um, so it's for females uh, who work in academic medical centers. Um, I think each institution can only nominate, you know, one or two candidates. And I was really excited to learn that I got, a, I, I got selected by Penn, but then I also got accepted by the program. So that starts this summer. Um, I think it's a, a nine or 10 month program. Um, there are three in-person weeks that kind of five day sessions where we get to work on different leadership uh, activities. And then all throughout the year, there are a bunch of virtual activities as well. So it gets started later this month and I'm really excited. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, somebody had said to me, oh, it's like another full-time job. And I was like, oh, that's great. <laughs> I, I needed another full-time job. Um, that's what leadership's about is just adding additional full-time jobs. <laughs> right. um, but I'm really excited about it. So I'll definitely report back once that gets started. Um, what else? Uh, the Penn Medicine Biobank has been really busy. We've been putting a lot of new infrastructure together and, and hopefully at a, another episode later this year, I can talk about um, some of what we've put together. I think we are going to write up some manuscripts. It's not quite all ready to talk about yet, but but soon. It, we've just been putting a lot of time in, and and that's hard because it's been hours and hours and hours of of meetings and putting together materials and websites that kind of nobody's really seeing yet. And so it's like all this kind of you know behind closed doors, just the not secretive, just a ton of like work work. And um, I'm looking forward to it being live, out for everyone to see, um, hopefully uh, kind of allows us to expand recruitment into the biobank and expand participation of researchers using the biobank. And I'm really excited about it, but it's, it's just been a lot of, um, lot of legwork. And you have a new role in the biobank. Do you want to mention that? Are you ready to mention that yet? Yeah, I think so. It's on the website. So as soon as the website goes live, it's there. So yes, um, Dan Rader and Mike Feldman asked me to join them as co-director of the Penn Medicine Biobank. So now we have three co-directors, which I'm very excited about. Um, I, for the last kind of year or two, I, I've been doing some of the work without the title, just because that's my personality. I guess that's why I'm doing a leadership program because I just can't help myself and um, to kind of be a leader and take things on. But no, I'm, I'm very excited to, to formally be a co-director. Every, every new title that we take on is another full-time job. That's how, that's how young people should look at it when, when senior faculty accumulate a bunch of titles. Think of them as each one a full-time job. That's right. Yeah, how many hats can I wear throughout the day? How many lines can I have in my email signature? <laughs> so, uh, but it's been, you know, it's a lot of fun. It's a, a project that I'm really passionate about. So I, I'm really excited about it. Um, we've started some new science projects, you know, the pandemic, gosh, we're like 14, 15 months. And so we've wrapped a lot of things up. And I noticed lately, We've been trying to do a lot more brainstorming about getting new projects started. And I'm curious to hear, Jason, if, if your lab has experienced this too, but I personally am starting to see the, it's like a little harder to get that creativity stuff really moving because for so much of the pandemic, we were working on things that, that we had already brainstormed. We already had all those in-person whiteboard sessions where we you know threw lots of ideas up and picked some. 
but now we're having to start that again. And it's just hard on Zoom. I'm like, I'm really missing the the face-to-face -face time in the lab for that stuff. I think I've mentioned it before, but I'm really noticing it now as we're starting new science projects and you know, trying to come up with new ideas and be innovative. Um, I'm finding it to be a, a little bit harder. You know, I I I feel like I'm still being personally just me still being creative. Um, but what I really miss is the whiteboarding, you know, the, the, like you said, the in-person brainstorming where somebody has an idea and you go to the whiteboard and you sketch it out. And, you know, that just doesn't work so well on zoom. And I think that, that that's, what's really missing. Yeah, I agree. I even bought a whiteboard at home, but it's not the same by myself. Like I do it <laughs> so that I can keep like when I'm writing a grant or I'm writing a paper, I sketch it out and, you know, erase, but, but no one else can see it. <laughs> Uh, what else? Uh, because so Zoom, I, I'm definitely feeling some Zoom fatigue. I'm trying to figure out how to get better control. I looked at my calendar because of teaching, which was on Zoom, and these advisory panels, which are Zoom, and then um, you know all of my other meetings. I've had a lot of weeks lately, but with between 35 and 42 hours of, and not just Zoom, Blue Jeans, Teams, all all the online um, meeting software. That's that's a full time week. And that's not including all the other work that I had to get done too. So I'm like, man, I've got to figure out how to get off of some of these, um, you know, Zoom calls and uh, have more time to actually read and write and think. Um, what else? Uh, some personal things. I did get my vaccine, both both first and second dose since we've done an episode. So I'm really happy as of later this week, actually tomorrow, I will be two weeks post second dose. So I am kind of, you know, as vaccinated as one can be and protected against coronavirus. So uh, I'm really excited for that. Um, I did take an actual vacation uh, about a month ago now, and that was really nice. Um, it was nice to unplug from Zoom for a bit. Um, and then actually, while I was on my vacation, I did spend a bit of time working on my other podcast, uh, putting together some research and some sketching out some episodes and I've recorded a few and, and I'm excited. I, the listenership is expanding for that podcast. Um, the last three or four episodes, it's been like doubling almost each time. And so I don't know, I don't know what's happening. People are sharing it with a friend. There's a bot that she just keeps hitting it. I don't know, but I'm excited to see that, you know, more people are listening. So Jason, what have you been up to? Well, first, uh, congratulations on your podcast. I'm really happy to hear that the uh, the viewership, listenership is is taking off, and uh, that's no surprise to me. Uh, I I haven't listened to every episode, but the ones I've listened to are amazing, and you do such a great job. So, congratulations. Thank you. So I've been busy with grants. I know I sound like a broken record because I'm always busy with grants, but uh, that's what I've been doing. Um, I submitted an NIH Center grant on artificial intelligence for precision nutrition. Some of you probably saw the, that RFA and maybe even responded to it. I had a lot of fun putting that together with a great team of nutrition researchers and AI researchers, informaticians, and, and everybody really pulled together and did a great job. I think we put in a, a really outstanding application. I really hope that one gets funded. I'm really excited about it. Um, but this makes two NIH AI center grants that I've submitted in the past year, along with a third, uh, an NSF grant as multiple PI, which also was a huge amount of work. 
so I'm I'm a little burned out to be honest on submitting at center grants. And if you've if you're a young investigator and have never submitted a center grant, it's a heck of a lot of work. You know, think think about all the time it takes to put in an R01 and multiply it by three or four times. So uh, especially as PI, um, it's uh, it's it's huge amount of work. Um, but hopefully at least one of them gets funded. Uh, I'm excited about all of them. And um, if one of them gets funded, I'll, it'll, be, it'll be great. Um, I finished my special topics in biomedical informatics course, uh, which I teach every year. It's uh, taught with a kind of a paper review and discussion format. And we had a really great semester. And uh, one of the students, a clinician, uh, we have a lot of clinicians in the class, uh, suggested that we teach our introduction to biomedical informatics course using this format. And I had that really sort of, uh, I kind of paused and thought, wow, what a great idea. Instead of you know, doing, doing standard didactic lectures for this intro class, why not teach from the primary literature and really put the focus on discussion? And you know, the students, I think, almost have me convinced that you know, maybe that's something we should think about. Uh, it might be more effective because they really love the discussion-based format. And, you know, we have a lot of clinicians, a lot of people who already have advanced degrees in the class. Um, you know, we're not, we're not teaching undergraduates. We're not teaching beginning graduate students in most cases. Uh, so anyway, an interesting idea. Yeah, I think that's a great idea for that class. And that was one of the classes, I, as you know, I taught. Um, it was fantastic. I mean, it was a three-hour session, right? So the classes um, were three hours in the evening and it went almost the whole time, every time because the discussions were so exciting and fruitful. And like, I mean, we had to like, okay, we really, we need to wrap up so that we can actually finish. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I think it's a great idea, a great way to teach that intro class. Well, thanks for, thanks for doing that. Yeah. And, and we always get the best mix of students. You know, I would say about 80% of the class are clinicians. So either uh, people doing, uh, you know, physicians doing residency or fellowship training, we, we always get a couple nursing students. Uh, and then we get, you know, a couple PhD students. Um, we had a, a law student uh, in class this year, which was, you know, he had some really interesting perspectives. Um, so yeah, I, I love that class. It's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Um, I submitted the uh, annual report for the Institute for Biomedical uh, Informatics that Marilyn, you helped with and had an initial meeting with the dean's office about budgets for the coming year. And uh, just, you know, it's a good chance to reflect on the past year. And, you know, we've had an amazing, amazingly productive year, you know, while, while dealing with and responding to the COVID crisis. So I'm really proud of our faculty and everything we've done uh, despite the challenges. Uh, we hired two faculty, which I'm very excited about. Um, uh, Dr. Joost Wagner is joining us as an expert in cloud computing and big data. He started May 1st. And Dr. Kevin Johnson from Vanderbilt is moving to Penn in the fall as a distinguished Penn Integrates Knowledge PIK professor, uh, endowed professor with a joint appointment in the engineering school. We're, we're so excited to have both of them joining our informatics team and, and specifically uh, my division of informatics and uh, hoping to do some more recruiting uh, later this year. Um, I attended uh, the NHGRI T32 training grant meeting. Uh, I'm PI uh, with Kate Nathanson from Penn of a, a T32, postdoctoral T32 focused on genomic medicine. 
and uh, it went really well. The every the organizers did an absolutely amazing job. It was flawless execution. I think we're all getting good at at this at this remote uh, remote meeting stuff. But I was particularly impressed with the poster sessions, and they used a, a format where each author gives a very short PowerPoint presentation, and then uh, and then there's plenty of time to ask questions. And they do that a couple times during the hour as new people come in, and the presentations are really short; they they last like two minutes. Um, anyway, I really like that format. I think it's a good way to do it. I submitted our CTSA informatics progress report uh, as well. Um, and as with the Institute annual report, it's a nice way to reflect on the accomplishments of the past year. And uh, we've had many. Uh, I gave a talk and spent the day virtu virtually with the faculty at Michigan State University and had a great time. I didn't realize how many friends and colleagues I had there until I started um, you know, lining up the people I wanted to meet with. And I know so many people at Michigan State, and they, they have so many exciting research projects uh, across all the different areas that I'm interested in. Uh, I wanted to mention that the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is right next door here at Penn, um, and we have close relations with, is recruiting bioinformatics and computational biology faculty. And I've been meeting with a ton of outstanding candidates and they're getting really talented people applying for those positions and people appointed through that search will will have uh, appointments in in uh, our institute um, I published an editorial with several colleagues uh, from diverse backgrounds uh, on 10 important roles for academic leaders to promote equity diversity and inclusion in data science in uh, the journal that Marilyn and I uh, run called Biodata Mining. And, uh, you know, in this piece, we, uh, uh, you know, review all the different ways in which we as leaders can have an impact on equity, diversity, and inclusion with, with a slant toward data science. But I think the piece is, uh, you know, generally accessible to any, anybody in a leadership position. So I highly recommend reading this if you're thinking about a leadership position. I think we, we have some good tips in here. And we uh, didn't plan on reviewing this for the podcast this time, Marilyn, but we might want to work it into the schedule for next time and, and kind of go over it. Yeah, I think it would be great. I think it's a wonderful paper that, that you all put together. So I think it'd be great to talk about on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I'll just mention I was elected as a member of the International Statistics Institute, uh, which is an honor. And um, I, you know, I'm not primarily a statistician, even though I'm trained in statistics. Um, you know, I don't publish, you know, statistics theory, for example. Um, but I think it's a, you know, it's a nice recognition from my statistics peers, colleagues around the world uh, of my work in the data science space. So thank you for uh, supporting that that membership. And, um, you know, Marilyn and I just came from a faculty meeting where um, we were learning about all the new NIH reporting regulations related to uh, relationships with foreign entities and things like that. And um, I think we'll probably talk about this more maybe uh, some other time, but, um, you know, basically for those of you that are not in the United States and don't apply for NIH funding, um, this means that the amount of paperwork that we're going to have to do uh, reporting all of our activities, our extramural activities, like giving talks and serving as consultants and 
reviewing grants, um, all of those things, every one of them <clears throat> is now going to have to be uh, be reported. And it's going to be a tremendous burden on all of us. And, and the other problem is that the consequences, if you make a mistake on, you know, an honest mistake on reporting some relationship, um, you know, there could be pretty severe consequences, legal consequences. Um, you could lose your job, for example. So I think we're all not too happy about this, but we'll see, we'll see how it, how it finally plays out. Yeah, we're all going to need lawyers to look over our paperwork before we submit it. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, my God. I'm really worried about this. I, I don't think this is a good a good sign. Uh, and if the NIH is listening, I think uh, uh, be sure you talk to a lot of faculty about this before you set all this in stone. Um, and I'll, lastly, I'll just mention that I got my second dose of the Pfizer vaccine on Monday. Uh, today's Wednesday, so two days ago. And I spent all day yesterday on the couch. I had a 24-hour fever and headache, um, which was unpleasant, but nonetheless a small price to pay for being protected. So uh, looking forward to uh, two weeks from now when uh, I'm fully protected. So uh, if you haven't done it, get out there and get your vaccine. Uh, the fever and headache was uncomfortable, but uh, comes and goes pretty quickly. And I viewed, I had the same thing, headache, fever, and I just was laying there like, my immune system is working. My immune system is working. And it was like, you could know that your body was making antibodies. And it, it, it almost felt good that I had a fever and had a headache because I, I knew that it was not just water that got injected into my arm. Yeah, I, I agree. I had the same thought. Um, I was happy to have a robust reaction and know that I had a, a young, still have a young immune system despite being in my, in my 50s. Uh, so it kind of made me feel young, you know, uh, so that was kind of nice. Um, but it was also kind of surreal having fever and headache and, and sort of part of what would come with a nasty viral infection and not the other stuff, like no runny nose, no cough, no sore throat. So, and then this morning when I woke up, it was all completely gone and <laughs> no residual. So it was just, it was just kind of, the whole thing was just kind of bizarre. our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements. In case you are listening to us for the first time, you can find us on the web at bmipodcast.org. You can send feedback to feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also leave feedback on Twitter. Our handle is at bmirpodcast and also on Facebook. Be sure to leave us feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Reviews help us improve the podcast, but also help improve our visibility. I am Subha Madhavan, Chief Data Scientist at the Georgetown University Medical Center. And you're listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we will pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is cultivating a career in computational biology. Jason will introduce the topic. Thanks, Marilyn. Career development in computational biology and biomedical informatics more broadly is, is generally a little different than other disciplines, and it requires some specialized strategies 
And I was excited to see a paper on this topic on archive uh, by uh, doctors Ann Carpenter, Casey Green, and Elena Fertig, uh, with a number of other co-authors. Uh, the title of the paper is A Field Guide to Cultivating Computational Biology, and it's filled with useful perspectives and advice and, and a number of uh, cultural issues, um, both for computational biologists and for biologists to be aware of. So here's a, here's a distilled list of what they cover. So I pulled out 10, 10 items that they, that they uh, focus on in this paper. So number one, uh, and this is directed toward biologists, that biologists should not be offended if their research interests do not fit those of the computational biologists. So if you're a biologist, you go to a computational biologist looking for collaboration and they say no, you should understand that uh, it, you know, maybe, maybe your topic is not in their area of expertise, or maybe it's not something they're interested in and be respectful of that. You know, computational biologists are not mandated to collaborate with everybody that comes to them, just like the biologist is not mandated to collaborate with every computational biologist that comes to them. So something to be aware of. Number two, um, is, uh, uh, to engage computational biologists early in the project so they can help with the design of the study and maximize the impact of the downstream analytics. Uh, the last thing a computational biologist wants to do is come in and try to save a, a poorly designed project with inferior analytics. Uh, so, uh, so engage them early, uh, establish those collaborations uh, first thing. Number three uh, is to fund the work of computational biologists. Uh, so if you're a biologist and you're writing a grant and you need a computational biologist as a collaborator, fund, uh, fund the work that needs to be done. Uh, don't just fund the effort of the computational biology faculty member, but you have to fund staff or students in their lab to actually do the work because faculty don't have time to write code and run analyses themselves. They're too busy writing their own grants and teaching and doing service work. Um, as you heard about in our introductory comments, we're, we're busy with all of those things. So um, it's, it's the postdocs, the graduate students, the programmers, the staff in our labs that do the work. You have to fund their time uh, if you want the work done. Number four, give computational biologists appropriate authorship placement on papers. So ask, your, ask yourself this question, could, these results been possible without their collaboration? Was it essential? And I recommend to the computational biologist that you discuss authorship upfront before the collaboration begins and have that understanding with your collaborators uh, about where you will be on the authorship list. Number five is establish academic structures and review panels that reward team science, which is common in computational biology. And I think this applies to promotion and tenure. Uh, and I know Penn here uh, has made some progress, I think, in rewarding team science as part of the promotion and tenure process. Um, and I think it's something uh, certainly to, to strive for. Number six, uh, develop and reward cross-disciplinary training and mentoring. Number seven, support computational infrastructure needed to do the work. Uh, we rely very heavily on high-performance computing and institutions need to provide that infrastructure for us if they want strong computational biology. Support computational biologists who want to have a wet lab component. Uh, we have a number of computational biologists here at Penn 
that have wet labs. And so they can explicitly, you know, validate computational results that they're generating. And that's a powerful model. I don't do it myself, but I really um, admire the people who take the time to have wet labs and do that. It's, it's a, an amazing combination. And I'm at times envious that they, that they can do that. Number nine, provide incentives for secondary analysis of existing data. And number 10, phys- facilitate access to clinical data like electronic health record data. So I, um, I really like this, uh, this paper. I hi- uh, highly recommend taking a look at it. I think there are a lot of good tips here for both biologists, computational biologists, and institutions on how to create a culture where everybody can work together to advance science. Yeah, I thought this was a great paper, and and I want to expand on just a few of the points and maybe add a few others. The the point that that they make and that you made about um, engaging computational biologists early in the project reminded me of sayings that, gosh, I feel like I heard even back in grad school about statisticians, and I feel like it's the same thing with a computational biologist or a statistician. You know, if you wait until your project is done and you've generated all the data, and basically you're trying to figure out what to do now, you cannot call the computational biologist or the statistician to the morgue to try to revive your project. You know, if you did not have the right design and the right controls and generate enough data to have statistical power, statistics is not gonna save your project. Computational biologists grabbing the fanciest machine learning they can find is not going to bring your project back from the dead. You have to talk to them at the design phase, not when the project has died. Yeah, that's a good good point, Marilyn. And that I think that comes from a famous quote by Sir Ronald Fisher, who said uh, it was some, something like, um, to bring in a statistician after the experiment is done is, you know, to 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 say what the experiment died of. Um, so I think that's what something like that. Something like that. Yeah, that is immediately what I what I thought of is remembering yeah. that from grad school. Um, the other point about um, giving uh, funding to the computational biologist, in particular for junior faculty, I think they don't do as well asking for this. And I don't know if it's that they're shy and afraid to ask or if they they just don't know to do it. But I try to tell all of the junior faculty that I um, mentor and collaborate with it. And I think I learned this probably from you when I was a junior faculty, that when someone does offer to put you on the grant or they have funding for you to do something, I always ask for a percent effort for me and someone in my lab, whether it's a graduate student, it's a postdoc, it's a programmer, it's an analyst, because at some point, the, the faculty member's percent effort is gone. So if you put 25% effort on four projects, now you have no time to start any new projects. And so instead you might put 15% of you and 25% of a postdoc, or maybe you start with 25% of you but then at some point you transition and you go down to 20 or 15 and that effort then goes to a programmer. I mean, I think this idea that you just wanna put the faculty member on a grant and not the support staff, the same way that in a wet lab, they have, they have graduate students and postdocs, they have research assistants, they have lab managers, those people who, who need to do some of the actual work, the same thing happens in a computational lab and, and we should be asking for the funding for that. 
you know, Marilyn, my, my rule of thumb, uh, for many, many years, and, and, and I don't always strictly follow this because it's not always possible, but my general rule of thumb is for every 5% effort to, to fund 25% of a staff member or a postdoc to do the work. And, uh, obviously that doesn't make sense for every grant, but it's something it's, it's a good, something to shoot for, right. Um, to make sure you have the funding to do the work. And, and I'll say one of the other problems, in addition to just, you know, getting the funding budgeted on a grant submission is collecting on that funding. Once the grant is funded, I've had this happen over and over and over. I would say dozens of times in my career where I go on a grant for some effort, budget, some effort for a staff member, the grant gets funding and then we never see the money or the budget gets cut, right? Maybe, maybe you budget 25% of a postdoc and then they say, Oh, sorry, you know, we, we can only give you 10% and uh, seeing this over and over again, it's so common. So you have to, you have to really fight for that effort, both upfront on the writing of the grant and on the back end when the grant gets funded. And I would say, don't be afraid to walk away. You know, if somebody's going to shortchange you, then say, look, I, I can't do it for, for less than this. You need to go find someone else. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, some other things that I thought about, um, and this is more, I guess, for the computational biologists to just be aware of, especially if you're, you're talking with biologists who, you know, there's a lot of diversity in what a computational biologist can focus on. You know, there's different types of methodologies, there's different types of statistics, there's different types of techniques. And, you know, I think we all realize that we cannot be the expert in every topic kind of within the field of computational biology. But I think sometimes outsiders forget that, or maybe they don't even realize that, that we have depth in a few areas, but you can't have depth in all of them. And so I think sometimes when you have those conflicts where the biologists have a project and the computational biologist isn't interested. I think you you said this, but I, I just want to expand on sometimes it's not their area of expertise. They don't they don't understand all the nuances. They they're not going to go deep on that project with you because that's not their area. We, you know, most of us have chose a few areas and that's where we go all in. And then we like tangentially kind of know about the other areas. But for example, I am not an expert in single cell anything. I am not the expert. I'm not going to be the main PI. I'm not, I wouldn't even be comfortable being the primary computational person on a grant working on single cell RNA-seq, any single cell omics, because that's not the area that I, I know a lot about. I think it's fascinating and I'm loving learning about it, but, but I'm not going to pretend like I could be the lead computational biologist. And, and that's okay. We, we don't have to be the expert in all of it. Um, and related to that, I, I do know some, you know, being ready to pivot into the areas that do look exciting, I think is also really important. So I know some people who, you know, single cell was not a thing 10 years ago. So, you know, certainly when, when either of us trained, of course, we wouldn't have been trained in single cell omics. It was not a technique that existed, but some of our peers have pivoted and started to really go all in on those new techniques. And, and I feel like I've even done that a bit on some different take techniques. You know, early on, I, I didn't do a ton of EHR work. I didn't do any as a graduate student. And it wasn't until a few years into my faculty position that I really went, you know, all in on EHR data. And even then, it was more so on the, you know, easy phenotypes, not the machine learning, not the NLP. 
Um, and then the last thing, and I don't remember if they talked about this explicitly in the paper. I don't remember it, but I just was talking to a junior faculty about it this week, that sometimes we have to be really creative in our grant strategy as a computational biologist or, or biomedical informatician because methods grants are really hard to get funded. And there are only maybe three or four study sections that review methods grants well kind of in this space. And, and they only fund a couple a year. And there are lots of us that do that type of work. And so I know for me personally, I've been much more successful when I can partner with a biologist or a clinician and make the grant have a focus that, that can be reviewed by many more study sections that can be funded by institutes outside of you know, NLM and NHGRI, which are kind of the two main in kind of genomics and informatics, that instead make your methodology and your exciting analytical work part of a bigger picture that have, asks a really important biological question. Sometimes you, you can hit that methods grant and it gets funded and it's great, but um, a lot of junior folks, and I was one of them too, I wanted a methods grant and I kept like over and over submitting the methods grant and I think it took me five or six years before I got my first methods grant, but I was able to get a, an application grant that had a science, you know, a biological question within the first two or three. So, um, as I said, I don't remember that they mentioned this, but I think the the being creative and strategic about grant opportunities is kind of the last thing that I would add. Yeah, I agree with that, Marilyn. I think it's one of the great strengths that we have as computational biologists is be able to take the, the methodologic things that we're good at. If you're a deep learning person or a data integration person or what you know, whatever your methodologic strength is, and you can apply that to a whole bunch of different areas and different kinds of data. And it, that gives you tremendous flexibility to kind of shop your grants across the NIH, different review panels. But uh, those biologists, clinician collaborators are really key in, in establishing those relationships so you can write a credible grant in a space that you know nothing about. It is now time for some news items. The following are a few things that caught our eye. Marilyn will get us started with the first item. All right, thanks, Jason. So first, a Washington Post piece discusses what we will find when we return to the offices we abandoned more than a year ago. The layer of dust on everything will signify workspaces frozen in time. They refer to it as office archeology. span What is that phone number on that scrap of paper? Who is it for? Was it important? We will find expired snacks, unwashed coffee cups, perhaps even rotting food. What will you find? Um, I, this cracked me up. And actually, I had a student go into the lab this week and he sent a message on Slack to the group because just at lab meeting on Monday, I had said, like, I'm afraid to look in the refrigerator. Oh, gosh, does anyone have any idea what we left in there last March? <laughs> and he said, I have good news and bad news. The good news, there were no leftovers containers with rotting food. We were like, yay. And he was like, the bad news. I have no idea what type of fruit was in the fruit drawer, but it is no longer fruit. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I, I have not been in my office once uh, since March of last year. And that, when I get fully vaccinated, I plan to start going back a little bit over the summer 
I think Penn's allowing us to go back in July. That's the plan anyway, and and kind of be you know fully back to whatever kind of you know work home schedule we want to have in the fall. But um, it'll be interesting. You know, I have no idea what was on my desk, what the little scraps of paper were, what they mean. It's going to be interesting to see. Um, Okay, uh, next up, um, just want to mention we're recruiting a director of our Division of Epidemiology here at Penn in my department, and I would love to see a computational epidemiologist land that position. So spread the word, and uh, we have a link here to the job ad um, in the show notes. Okay, next, um, our friend Casey Green, or at Green Scientist uh, at the University of Colorado, tweeted, on April 16th, and I quote, the thing that surprises me most about remote work 13 months into the pandemic is the total evaporation of unscheduled time. And then Marilyn, I, I saw a tweet of yours from a few days before that, uh, and you said, can we all agree to end meetings a few minutes early so that people can transition in between virtual meetings? I missed the days when I had to leave early to walk across campus. I could stop at the bathroom. If we're doing it right, in other words, drinking water, then we need to use the bathroom. I, I think I agree with both uh, Casey and you, Marilyn. I think this is one of the hardest parts of Zoom life, and I certainly have made an effort to end meetings early for that reason. Yeah, I've been trying at like five minutes till the end of the hour. I'm like, all right, well, let's wrap up. And people are like, wait, wait, one more thing. And I'm like, well, we're almost out of time. No, no, wait, just one more quick thing. And I'm like, ah, oh, come on. Pretty soon I'm just going to start like having like a, a an alarm or a gong that just keeps ringing. I'm like, sorry, got to go. I don't know what that is. You know what I've been doing is scheduling more half hour meetings and and then blocking off the whole hour on my calendar. So you have the half hour meeting. Everybody knows it's a half hour. So you, you say what you need to say, and then you've got half an hour to, you know, go to the bathroom, rehydrate, uh, you know, catch up on email before your next Zoom. Yeah, that's a great idea. I need to do more of that. All right, the, the next thing, uh, there was a piece in Science from March 29th titled, I'm Empty. Pandemic scientists are burning out and don't see an end in sight. This piece highlights the strain we are all feeling due to the greatly increased workload. Uh, here's a quote from the piece. For junior scientists, the crisis has magnified stresses already present in the academic system. Everyone is working nights, weekends, every spare minute of their lives. There's no extra pay. There's no guarantee of any extra recognition, says Dr. Emma Hodcroft, a computational biologist and postdoc at the University of Bern, who has been tracking SARS-CoV-2 evolution for the project Next Strain. Um, also, here's another quote from the paper. Dr. Krutika Kupali, an infectious disease physician and the Medical University of South Carolina, for her part, does not see an end to her own exhaustion in sight, in part because whenever she is asked to do one more thing to fight the pandemic, I don't feel like I can say no because it's larger than me and I feel lucky to be in a position to contribute. Yeah, this, uh, so two of my last three episodes of the other podcast that I do, it was burnout part one and burnout part two. And I talked about kind of why we're feeling it, what we can try to do about it, but it's real. And, you know, I actually saw one of our colleagues tweeted over the weekend, something along the lines of like, he said something like, I, I was very productive at the beginning of the pandemic. I noticed it start to decline. 
midway through. Now I can't get anything done. I am such a dumbass. And I tweeted back like, oh my gosh, you're not a dumbass. You're burnt out. You have been working your butt off for over a year. We have got to cut ourselves some slack. Yeah, I I, uh, I thought this was a really important piece and everybody should read it because I think many of us are experiencing this and it's it's kind of a, a weird congruence of events, right? We're, we're forced to work from home which has all of its own challenges, Zoom, et cetera, you know, dealing with family, uh, you know, all, all those things. There's that, that whole side of things, which is challenging. While at the same time, many, uh, many of us informaticians who are being asked to step up and help deal with the pandemic from an informatics point of view, can't, we can't say no. You know, it's a pandemic. I mean, people are dying. You got you to gotta roll up your sleeves and do the work. You know, Marilyn, you and I have put in endless extra hours this last year, helping our institution deal with the pandemic, setting up informatics infrastructure and databases and, um, you know, pulling data and doing analyses and writing papers on, on COVID-19. I mean, it's just endless and you can't, you know, so, so on one hand, you're put into this challenging situation. And on the other hand, you, you can't say no to the extra workload. And we're going to talk a little bit about saying yes or no a little bit later in our training segment. Um, this will come up again, but yeah, it's an interesting time. Yeah, absolutely. And related to that piece, there's another one in the New York Times. Uh, this article was from April 13th, and it was titled, Could the Pandemic Prompt an Epidemic of Loss of Women in the Sciences? This piece highlights Penn's own Dr. Elisa, or Alyssa Stevens, who struggled to work at home with two small children. They write, and here's a quote, the path is even rockier for scientists of color, like Dr. Stevens, who encounter other biases in the workplace, in everyday reactions, professional reviews, or promotions, and now have to cope with the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on Black and Latino communities. The piece explores these issues and others, such as the now retracted nature communications piece that we mentioned months ago, suggesting women at, with male mentors are more likely to be successful in academia. I'm glad to hear that was retracted. Um, not only was that paper offensive, but it was believed to have uh, flawed analytics. Um, this New York Times article will have the link in the show notes. It's a really important read. It's something I certainly, you know, as a woman in science, I worry a lot about it. And, um, and I think uh, all of us who are in leadership positions need to be very mindful as we're reviewing, um, you know, CVs and performance of our colleagues and try to to view it, view their life through their lenses. Um, Cause it's very hard to know what other people are going through with the pandemic without knowing the age of their children, who lives in their home, how many people are caring for elderly people in their home? How many people are both frontline workers? You know, if there's a, a married couple and they're both frontline workers and there's children at home, that situation is very different from a single person living alone. Though again, a single person alone in a studio apartment may have been alone for the last 14 months. That is hard to wrap your head around. So I think there's just a lot of, of a lot that we're gonna be dealing with from the pandemic that is outside of the infection control for months and months to come. Yeah, these are very real and important issues. And while we're on the topic of racism and discrimination, um, there's a, a New York Times piece from April 13th on the fight over offensive terminology in computer science and engineering. 
there's an open community called the Internet Engineering Task Force, which is, uh, I think, a volunteer nonprofit organization, and they work to ensure the smooth operation of the Internet. And from what I can tell, I think they do a, a really good job. And they have taken on reform of racist terminology related to information technology. For example, it is commonplace to refer to a central server as a master and a peripheral node in a network as a slave. And the words whitelist and blacklist, for example, are also used commonly to refer to accepted or filtered internet content. Um, you know, when I read this piece, it was just like, it was, it was really eye-opening for me. It's like, oh my God, you're right. I mean, these are, these are racist, uh, offensive terms that are used commonly in, in IT. And, uh, it's, and what's surprising to me is that this organization, uh, the internet engineering task force is meeting with substantial resistance from the IT community to change these words. You know, what the hell? You know, why would it be so hard to change master to, say, primary and slave, for example, to secondary? It's look, it's it's time to make these changes. This is not acceptable. Yep, I completely agree. I'm meeting that same uh, challenge with other scientists, you know, in writing and editing papers, I'll say this is not the appropriate way to refer to this anymore. You should use this language instead. And they'll say, but this is how we've always referred to it. And I will reply, and it has always been racist and it is no longer acceptable. Not that it ever really was, but many of us weren't aware how racist some of these phrases were. So right. yeah, we all need to start, you know, put it, making a stand against this. I, the, you know, I think it, it has to come from the, the individuals who are not in the underrepresented group. We, those in the overrepresented group, need to take a stand. Absolutely. Uh, another news piece, the NHGRI held a virtual machine learning and genomics workshop on April 13th and 14th, which was very well attended and widely praised. The stated goal of the workshop from their webpage was, and this is a quote, the primary purpose of the workshop is to stimulate discussion around the opportunities and obstacles underlying the application of machine learning methods to basic genome sciences and genomic medicine, to define the key scientific topic areas in genomics that could benefit from ML analyses, and NHGRI's unique role at the convergence of genomic and machine learning research. Yeah, I was I was really happy to see this workshop being held by NHGRI. I, I unfortunately could not attend, but I had some students who attended, and they said it was outstanding. And it looked like a great agenda. Looking at the list of speakers, and you know, I I it's nice to see times changing. I I just you know maybe this is my own maybe I'm alone in this opinion, but it just seems like gen, the 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 field of genetics and genomics has resisted machine learning for a long time, especially the human genetics community. And it's nice to see the NHGRI embrace machine learning, recognize its importance, that it's part of the future of doing genomics and to, to hold something like this. I hope they make it an annual event. Okay, uh, next up, uh, we all complain bitterly about that one reviewer of the three who ends up uh, uh, make, you know, uh, rejecting our paper or grant, right? 
And we all jokingly refer to that reviewer as reviewer number two or reviewer number three. Actually, it's always reviewer number three in my experience. Some people think it's reviewer number two. So there's a little bit of a controversy there over which reviewer is it. Um, but somebody decided to find out, is it reviewer number two or is it reviewer number three? Um, so a, a recent study by Dr. David Peterson in the journal Social Science Quarterly uh, decided to settle this question. The title of the paper is Dear Reviewer Number Two, Go F Bleep Yourself. Um, <laughs> It's the best. This is the best uh, paper title ever. Yeah, um, they win. <laughs> they win. Um, the author looked at the reviewer database from the journal Political Behavior and analyzed the relationship between reviewer position and their evaluation and ultimate um, uh, recommendation for the acceptance or rejection of the paper. And this, this author found no evidence that reviewer number two is more likely to reject a paper. However, he did find significant evidence that reviewer number three is more likely to be one category more negative than the other two reviewers. So I, uh, and, and the conclusion of the paper states, reviewer number two is not the problem, reviewer number three is. In fact, he is such a bad actor that even he gets the unwitting Reviewer number two blamed for his or her, <laughs> I'll add, or her bad behavior. And um, I have to say, I've had this argument with people. I feel vindicated. It, it really is reviewer number three. I've always thought it was reviewer number three. And in fact, when I am reviewer number three, I'm. I, I, it's almost like, oh, no, like, is it my job to look at this more critically? Because I'm reviewer three. <laughs> reviewer three always is the naysayer. <laughs> Okay, on to our last item of, of news uh, for the, the podcast today. Um, Samantha Wilson at Samantha L. Wilson uh, is a student being mentored by Dr. Michael Hoffman at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center in Toronto. And she tweeted uh, a great question on April 9th. Why are we not allowed to present the same data at more than one international scientific conference? Shouldn't we be encouraged to do this if the work is interdisciplinary? And it, I hadn't thought about that before, but she makes a really good point. Um, you know, this seems more about the interests of the conference and their bottom line than it is about science communication. Um, you know, should should only... Uh, should should a, an abstract only be presented at one scientific conference? What if what if there are a dozen authors and it was a real collaborative effort? Shouldn't some of the other authors get an have an opportunity to present that abstract at other meetings? I mean, why not? Absolutely, and I I feel like I've even done this in the past, where especially when something's interdisciplinary, you know, if you send an abstract to one conference that's more computational, then the abstract is written really focusing on the nuances and the you know innovation computationally and oh by the way we applied it to this problem and here was the result whereas if the conference is you know a cardiology meeting because the application of this new technology was in cardiology the whole spin of the abstract is very different the focus is on the cardiology finding and oh by the way we used this interesting method and so the abstracts are different and the presentations that one would give are very different. So I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. 
So Samantha, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the podcast to let us know what you found. If you've taken a deep dive into this issue, I find it really interesting. Now on to our software segment. Today, we will introduce Optuna. Jason will give a brief overview. Thanks, Marilyn. So the optimization of hyperparameters for machine learning is important, and, and it's always a challenge. Um, a simple way to do this is uh, to do a grid search where you identify the set of parameter values you want to try, and, and then you exhaustively evaluate all the combinations and compare the performance of the machine learning across all the different parameter settings. So this is a this is a nice approach, and it's easy to write a script uh, to do this, but it can be very computationally expensive, especially if you have a lot of parameters and a lot of parameter values that you want to explore because of the combinatorics. Now, there are a number of optimization algorithms out there for machine learning. I'm going to mention today one of those called Optuna, which we recently used in a project and, and really liked. Uh, the Optuna method was published in 2019 by Akiba et al. as part of the KDD Knowledge Discovery and Data Mining Conference. Optuna uses something called define by run, which is a phrase borrowed from deep learning. Here, the computation is done in two different phases. The first phase defines the search space of all parameters, while the second phase explores the parameter space uh, itself. This framework allows for several different sampling procedures and includes a pruning function to make the approach more computationally efficient. Optuna is open source and it's programmed in Python. It includes an API and a nice dashboard. Uh, we were very happy with the performance uh, and are currently writing uh, a paper on it uh, or a paper using it. Um, but um, you know, there may be some other methods like Bayesian methods, which could outperform it in certain situations. So I'm not gonna claim that this is the best optimization method, but it's one that we had used and it worked really well. So you might wanna give it a try if this is something that you're doing a lot of. And uh, I'll provide a link um, to Optuna and the, uh, the 2019 paper by Akiba et al. Thanks for sharing that, Jason. It sounds like a really cool tool and we haven't tried it yet. So we'll definitely give it a try. Now on to our open data segment. Today, we will introduce Gene Network. Jason will give a brief overview. Thanks, Marilyn. I, I've been getting more interested in doing some machine learning analyses with model organism data and wanted to highlight one of the many great resources that are out there. The Gene Network resource at genenetwork.org uh, was developed by Dr. Rob Williams at the University of Tennessee uh, to share expression quantitative trait locus or EQTL data from a variety of different species, including mouse, Drosophila, and Arabidopsis. Not only can you access and download the data sets, but it also has a number of built-in tools for things like network analysis and phenome-wide association studies. This is a, an impressive resource and it's widely used by the EQTL community. Um, and I have a grant pending uh, proposing to use this resource. So I hope if I get funded to, to be able to dive into this and some of the other resources like it that are out there. And I just wanted to you know, have a personal shout out to Rob Williams and his team for all their hard work on this. They've been developing this resource for many years now. 
And I, I think we need more of these easy to use web services um, in our field. Uh, and we'll have links um, to the uh, resource itself and to a, a paper, a scientific paper that gives an overview in the show notes. My name is Dr. Kevin B. Johnson. I'm professor and chair of the Vanderbilt University Medical Center Department of Biomedical Informatics with a joint appointment in pediatrics. And you are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now on to our Biomedical Informatics conferences update. First, the PSB, the Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing, call for papers is out, and papers are due on August 2nd. This year, so for the PSB 2022, there are five different sessions that are accepting papers. They are AI-driven advances in modeling of protein structure, big data imaging genomics, computational approaches to crop biology, Human Intrigue, Meta-Analysis Approaches for Big Questions with Big Data, and Precision Medicine, Using Artificial Intelligence to Improve Diagnostics and Healthcare. Really excited that PSB 2022 is scheduled to be back on the Big Island, so get your papers ready. Uh, it's only May. You've got plenty of time to get those papers written and submitted by August 2nd. I'm really excited to see the crop biology topic in there. That's a little different for PSP this year. It'll be, I, I hope, I hope it's a popular topic. That could be really interesting. Yeah, I hope so too. You know, the, the organizing committee was excited. We got some proposals that were pretty different. That one, we haven't had a protein structure session in years. Um, even the, the human intrigue session, it, it's different. So I'm, I'm excited to see some different things at PSB next year. And PSB will be in person, right? In January, that's the plan. That is the plan. As long as things with the pandemic continue to improve. Fingers crossed. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the next one, the AMIA or American Medical Informatics Association Virtual Clinical Informatics Conference will be held online May 18th to the 20th of this year uh, with a focus on value-based care, informatics response to COVID-19 and EDI. And then the AMIA 2021 Annual Symposium will be held in person in San Diego from October 30th to November 3rd. I have it circled and starred on my calendar. It's a dream to imagine a time when we could fly to San Diego <laughs> and go to a conference in person. I, oh, I'm so hopeful and optimistic that, that this is real and it can really happen. Uh, the paper submission deadline has passed, but uh, hopefully all will be well and we will be able to go in person. So uh, get ready to start booking some conference travel. Okay, we'd like to mention the Intelligent Systems uh, for Molecular Biology Conference, ISMB, which is the biggest bioinformatics computational biology conference sponsored by the International Society for Computational Biology is going to be held virtually July 25th through 30th. I think the paper submission deadline has already passed, but you might uh, want to attend. And um, the uh, the workshops and and sessions for this conference are are really great. And uh, you know, and the virtual platform certainly makes it uh, very accessible. 
uh, ISMB is usually held all over the world. Um, and I often can't go because it conflicts with another conference I can, I, I usually attend, but I'm looking forward to the virtual conference this year. And the last conference we'll mention um, is the 12th uh, ACM conference on bioinformatics, computational biology and health informatics, ACM BCB. And this conference, I don't think we've mentioned this conference too much, um, but this is really the primary bioinformatics comp bio conference, health informatics conference in the computer science domain. So this is ACM as the big computer science, the, the Association for Computing Machinery, which is the big computer science uh, society. And this is their main conference in this space. And it's gonna be held virtually August uh, 1st through 4th. Um, and uh, the paper deadline uh, has already passed. Um, I'm uh, actually serving as the workshop chair uh, or, or one of the workshop chairs um, for the conference this year. And uh, we just accepted, um, I think, six workshops. And those workshops will be soliciting papers and and uh, for I, some of them for publication and, and presentation. So keep an eye out for uh, the workshops if you want to participate. It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our topic of discussion is junior faculty advice to be presented by Marilyn. Thank you, Jason. So this uh, comes from a tweet. Uh, the person who tweeted it is Dr. Natalie Dean. Her handle is at Natalie X Dean. She is from the University of Florida and she tweeted this question on April 9th. Dear senior faculty, if you could give your junior faculty self one piece of advice, what would it be? Thanks in advance. Sincerely, a stressed out assistant professor looking for guidance. Wait, a stressed out assistant professor? Does that ever happen? Ha. Uh, does it ever not happen? <laughs> I think that's just the title on their CV, right? Right. Yeah, so this was a great thread. Uh, to follow on Twitter. And I kept going back to it just to see what did people say now? Um, so there are nearly 250 replies to that question. Here is a set of about 20 that Jason and, and I pulled together. Um, and so the first one, Jason tweeted in reply, trust your gut. And that's a good one. I tell people that all the time. Um, Number two, someone said to take advice from mid-career faculty since times were very different for senior faculty. That one made me chuckle a little bit. And, yeah. I, and I actually wondered, like, am I mid-career or am I senior? I'm not sure which one I am, but I, you're I in the laugh. You're in the early stages of senioritis, Marilyn. Okay, early senior, that's not terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but times were very different then. Um, say less. Oh, sorry, say yes, less often. Uh, that, that's a really important one. Um, take the day off and go to the zoo with the kids. I thought that was cute. Don't try to do everything alone. Don't sacrifice your mental health. I, I'm gonna come back to this one, but I'll get through the rest of the list first. Um, make friends outside your discipline. Treat your students like future colleagues. Set up a female mentoring group and meet once per month. Take evenings and weekends off. 
take sabbaticals, work with people you like, perfectionism is not a virtue, protect the time in your schedule when you work most productively, don't be too cautious, i.e. take some risks, treat everyone with respect, don't worry about the people who don't like you, oh, that's hard, uh, but true. Do research on what excites you, not what others expect. Don't think you need to do something forever, i.e. quit committees after several years and prioritize collaborations with people who give back. So I wanna go back to just a few of them and, and just make kind of my anecdotal comments to them. And then, and then Jason, I'll pass it over to you to see uh, what you would add. Um, I, I do wanna talk about the, the don't sacrifice your mental health, especially this year with what everybody's been dealing with the pandemic. I think it's become even more clear. I've, I've seen some, uh, some papers and some tweets from psychiatrists and psychologists who are really getting worried that we're gonna get on the other side of the COVID pandemic and then we're gonna be dealing with the mental health pandemic right behind it. And even prior to COVID, mental health in academia is, it's, it's a challenge to keep it in check. And it's because of all of the requirements and the things that we need to do. It's a competitive workspace in a lot of institutions. It's a, a terrible culture. The work environment is sometimes very stressful and sometimes toxic. And we cannot do a good job with our science or as a mentor or as a teacher if our mental health is, is out of whack. And so um, I, I know that there are a lot of organizations really pushing this, uh, this message and working on it. I know at Penn, they've been sending us tons of information about the employee assistance program and different services that are available to people at the institution for free, that you know, there's no shame in going for counseling, either you know, one-on-one -on -one or group therapy. Um, a lot of people are going through very similar mental health challenges. And this is one that you have to take seriously. We all do and give ourselves the space to be mentally healthy and also the people that we supervise and mentor um, I have more than once strongly encouraged people in my group to seek counseling, take some time off, do what they need to do to get their mental health back into, um, you know, a positive and healthy space. Um, another one that uh, that I wanted to point out: this set up a female mentoring group. I absolutely wish I had told myself this. Um, this is something I just did, like in. February, I think of 2021 was the first time that now these women, it's actually people, it's two of them. It's friends outside our, my discipline and also a group of females who are in a similar kind of level in their careers in terms of kind of being a leader, but having opportunities to take on more leadership and being kind of right at this kind of, you know, inflection point of either taking on more leadership or staying at the level of leadership that we're at. It's been phenomenal to have this group to bounce ideas off of, off of to talk through some of the challenges that, that females face um, in our kind of career trajectories, um, especially many of us work in what were predominantly male dominated fields. Um, I say all the time to take evenings and weekends off. Uh, I tell that to the people in my lab. I try to do it myself as much as possible and maybe not always both. So a lot of times, if I know that I have to work this weekend because I'm going to need a solid six to eight hours of working on something, then at the end of the workday during the, that week, 
I shut the computer and I'm like, I've got to take a break tonight because I know I'm not going to get a break on Saturday. If I know that I have Saturday off, then I probably work longer. Like I'll bust out the laptop again after dinner and do more work because I know that my reprieve is coming on the weekend. So I don't always get both evenings and weekends, but I try to make sure that, you know, in a given week, you've got to get, give your brain a break, you know, in one of those times. Um, and then the last one that I want to mention again, it's the protecting the time in your schedule when you work productively. So I'm a morning person. I am like at my peak early in the morning. And so my friends and even my husband will laugh at me sometimes because I will purposely, when I don't have to get up at five 30 or six in the morning so that I am like fully awake and like ready to go by seven o'clock. Like, why would you purpose? You don't have a meeting until 10. Why would you set an alarm for five 30? Because I know that between seven and 10, that is like my golden hours. I can get so much done my brain is fully in tune. I'm motivated. I'm excited. That's the time to, for me, for other people, it's, you know, midday or late at night. So figuring that out. And then I don't schedule meetings. I don't take 7am meetings very often. It has to be really urgent for me to take a 7am because that's my time. Um, so those were the ones that, that when I saw, you know, really spoke to me. Uh, so Jason, what do you think? Yeah, Marilyn, this was a, this is a great list, and I would definitely encourage people to uh, find this tweet, and we'll have a link to the tweet in the show notes and explore all of the suggestions. We just picked uh, 20, but there are many others. Um, I mean, many are part of the same themes, but I'm sure we missed some important ones, so be sure and look at the whole list. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I recently retweeted this, given the large number of responses, because I think it's really important people take another look at it. So first, um, as you mentioned, I tweeted, uh, when I saw this, uh, I tweeted to trust your gut uh, as a response to this question. And um, I do think it's important to not listen to others. If you are passionate about what you plan to do, if, if you think it's really important and you're super passionate about it, you know, whether it's a research project or a career decision, you know, don't, don't let the naysayers um, distract you from that. And, you know, when I've probably said this before on the podcast, but, um, you know, when I was a graduate student, every single faculty member I talked to in my department at the university, visitors, um, a, a, all everybody to a T told me that I should do a postdoc after graduate school. And I didn't listen to any of them. And I took a faculty position at Vanderbilt right out of graduate school. And I have never once regretted that decision, not once. It was the perfect decision for me. And I was passionate about it. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew it was the right decision for me. And I am so thankful I didn't listen to everybody. So, um, and I, Marilyn, I know you did the same thing, right? And have no regrets about it. A hundred percent. So that doesn't mean it, you know, would have been the right decision for everybody, but I, I think trusting your gut is really important. And I've never regretted trusting my gut um, throughout my career. It's usually not every time, but it's usually paid off. Uh, and, and those times when it doesn't, you learn from it and move on. And so I think the risk is worth the reward. Um, and uh, on the list was take some risks. And I agree with that. I also really like the comment about work with people you like. Sometimes you end up working with people you don't like, but once you figure that out, then you can avoid those projects with them in the future. You know, life's short. Uh, it's too short to 
work with difficult people. It takes the fun out of science. It just adds so much complexity and unhappiness to work with people you don't like. So, um, you know, this comp- comment is also related to the one about working with people who give back. There are plenty of takers in science. I've encountered more than I can count in my career. Figure out who the takers and givers are and work with the givers and, and be a giver. Science is so much more fun when you're working with a, a team of givers. It's just amazing. That's what science is about. So uh, find out who the takers are and, and try to stay away from them. It's not always possible, but do what you can. I also really like the comment, do research on what excites you. And I've adhered to this my entire career, and I've been so happy working on things that I think are interesting and important. And I think it's easy to fall into a trap of working on what your peers or your scientific community or your department chair or the journals or the funding agencies think are important. So, you know, I think it's, you know, this, this is the jump on the bandwagon effect. And the problem with this is that you're always a step behind. I think it's much better and more fun to be innovative and pushing a field forward into new areas. Sure, you'll, you'll be wrong sometimes, and, and maybe you'll get chastised by your community for that. But I, you know, the goal of science is to expand the discipline boundaries and generate new knowledge. And so you have to take chances and work on things that other people think you're crazy for working on. But if you're passionate about it and you believe in it, then that's important and you should do it. Um, so, and, and if you're doing things that are fun and important, you're more likely to work hard, which leads to more success. So, you know, finding the motivation to work on things you're not excited about can be really difficult. It is now time to wrap up the discussion for the day. Jason, any closing remarks? You know, Marilyn, I was thinking about our news item on, you know, dear reviewer two, go F bleep yourself. Um, and, uh, I tweeted the following out today in response to the reviewer number two phenomenon. And my tweet was, it is our job as mentors to teach the next generation of scientists, how to conduct thoughtful, helpful, and respectful reviews of papers and grants. The goal should be to reduce the number of third reviewers. And I followed this up with an additional tweet, uh, that reads, We should include strategies for unbiased peer review in our responsible conduct of research training for graduate students and postdocs. Biased review, I think, could be categorized as unethical and should be communicated to trainees as such. So I'm I'm definitely going to include this topic in our own RCR activities this year. I don't think the second or third reviewer phenomenon will ever disappear completely, you know, of course, because, you know, human diversity and et cetera, but maybe we can mitigate it through recognizing it as in some cases, unethical behavior. And by making a good attempt to teach strategies uh, for unbiased reviewing, I, you know, I personally approach every paper and grant review as how can I help the authors improve this work or project rather than how can I find ways to torpedo this? So anyway, that's what I've been thinking about. Marilyn, any closing thoughts? Yeah. Well, first, I, I completely agree with you. And I, I love the idea of creating RCR activities around that. I think it's a really good topic. Um, what I was just sitting here thinking about is that in kind of reflecting on the different t- segments from today, I think that the same point came up a couple of times in the news and in the training and even in the discussion 
And it, it boils down to our job as mentors. And you know, especially for those who are listening, who are in you know, professorship roles, who are leaders, who are faculty, you know, we are responsible for beginning to teach the next generation. And whether that's through mentoring them through graduate school or postdocs or mentoring junior faculty, or even teaching in courses, you know, for undergrads, or, or some might even be teaching high school students. With, with the work that we're doing in terms of manuscripts, with what we're doing with grants, the, the ways that we're writing, we talked about some of the structural racism and the language that people use. Here, we're talking about the way in which we um, review grants and papers, you know, even reflecting back, it, what do we wish we had told the earlier version of ourselves? Well, teach that to the next generation. You know, so many people in our at our level basically have this mindset of, well, it was hard for me, so it needs to be hard for them. Or I I lived through it, so they've got to live through it. And I feel like that's totally the wrong attitude. I know I'm trying really hard to to teach my mentees, so whether that's my grad students, my postdocs, the junior faculty that I mentor, to do better than I did. I overworked myself to the point of burnout as a graduate student, as an early faculty. It just, I, I definitely had periods where I was frazzled and I'm trying now to teach them to do better. They don't need to do that. It actually is counterproductive. And the more that we can teach the next generation to do better in in the way that they do their science and the way that they balance their science and you know their work and their life in the way that they review other people's work and the way that they mentor and teach others like that's how we're going to make a positive impact it we're and that's our goal i mean i think most scientists we get into this certainly not not for the fame and the money and if you find those people that's you know the the takers those are the people who are in this for money and fame and those are the, that's the wrong reason most of us got into science because we wanted to give back and we wanted to have a purpose, a life purpose that contributed to the greater good, not just ourselves. So if that's the case, then, then we do. We need to do better. And, but more importantly, we need to teach the people behind us, don't, don't make the same mistakes we did. Don't, don't use the wrong language that we were taught. This, it's always been that way, so we'll keep it that way. No, yeah, we were taught that way and it was wrong. So let's change it. We were taught to do it this way. We were taught to review papers and try to torpedo them. No, we should do better and try to lift each other up. And that, I think that is gonna allow kind of the next generation to perhaps even make more advances and have more innovations because they're not spending so much time dealing with the reviewer two or reviewer three scenarios. All right, well, that's it for today. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you will be able to find the time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia. 